Good morning, everyone. Thanks for being here. Sorry for the confusion of last week. We had a scheduling bumps, two or three train wrecks, a, a car wreck, an explosion, but I think the Lord brought us through it. But thank you for um, being here for prayer last week if you came. This morning we're continuing in our study of Christ in the tabernacle. And just as a general overview of what we're doing, this morning we are completing the study of the tabernacle in its specificity, the specifics of what the tabernacle is, how it's constructed, whatever. There'll be one more issue of the tabernacle I'll bring up within the next week probably. This week then will end that, but we are transitioning. We're continuing in our study, but the study now after this week, beginning next week, we'll get into the priesthood. The priest, the high priest, who is the functionary or God's man in the tabernacle or of the tabernacle. It will be the same study, but it has to move from a building to a person. And then once we've studied the priesthood and some of the vestments and the activities of the priest and the significance of Christ in that, and we'll be using Hebrews extensively for that informa <coughs> information, then we'll go into the seven Levitical festivals. You'll see those in Leviticus um, 16. The festivals, the seven celebrations a year where God's people come together and uh, as a kind of God's plan for the redemption of the world in those festivals, and we'll see that. Once we conclude that, then we'll be finished this study. The next study we'll do, beginning sometime, I would think, in September or perhaps beginning in October, however the schedule works out, <clears throat> will be, excuse me, will be a study of Christ in the Psalms. Christ in the Psalms. So just to kind of let you know where we're going I am excited about this. Uh, I am hopefully being led by the Spirit. I'm not being led by the flesh. This is not something I would have thought of. I've never done it. And so uh, this is, I'm really excited about how the Lord is leading in here, uh, and teaching us and ministering to us. I'm learning a lot, as maybe hopefully you are, so we're learning together. Um, so again, encourage folks. Let us know. Let them know what's happening, what you're learning, how it's affecting and impacting you, uh, how it's hopefully enlarging and invigorating vivifying, you know, making alive, vivifying the Word of God to us. Amen? Father, thank you so much. Father, I remember when we were in Russia. Father, when we were in Poland. Father, when we were in Mexico. Father, I remember, Father, when from time to time visiting other churches and having an opportunity to speak. Father, how people were astounded at your word and how it impacted them and changed them and how they literally sometimes followed us around. Father, remember that night when we left the, the church in Toliate after hours and hours of ministry, of teaching, walking home with a crowd of folks and all they said to us is, tell us more. Father, that you would put that kind of passion in this church. Tell us more. Father, when we read the pages of the Bible and Jesus is teaching and then he gets aside, the apostles say to him, tell us more. Tell us more. You had the words of eternal life. Father, thank you for being the God 
who when you tell us anything, we want to know more. Father, fill us more and more. Father, I pray that this church is becoming a church of tell us more believers. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> well, you remember in our previous session or lesson a couple of weeks ago, we saw how the sacrificing of the two goats, remember in Leviticus, we talked about the two goats that were sacrificed in relation to the, uh, the brazen altar and remember the blood coming into the Ark of the Covenant where the mercy seat is. We had the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat and the Holy of Holies. You remember us doing that. And so we talked about how the sacrificing of the two goats pictured the two things, pictured the propitiatory work of Christ, propitiation, and resulted in expiation, the expiatory work of Christ. And I'll go into that a little more detail in just a moment. But I want you to learn these words and to know these words because in several places the Bible talks about Christ as the propitiation. And we need to know what that means. So when your Bible says that, you want to know what that word means. Remember the propitiation work. The propitiation work of the shedding of the blood. When the blood is shed, when the goat's blood is shed and is sprinkled on the mercy seat. Remember the high priest once a year on the Day of Atonement. And we'll go into that in more detail when we start getting into the priesthood. When that happens, that, mercy, that seat, that Ark of the Covenant, which has the law in it, which is a picture of the judgment of God against anyone who breaks his law. The soul that sins shall die. Remember in Ezekiel 18, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So when the blood is shed and sprinkled on the mercy seat, why? Because God will have a people. And the only way for him to have a people is for him to deal with the broken law. And the only way to deal with the broken law is to have the shed blood, shed blood, sprinkled on the mercy seat so that the judgment that God has rendered against every sinner can become mercy. And so that is the propitiatory work of Christ, averting or putting off or satisfying the wrath of God as his justice against sin. The wrath of God, the eternal damnation of sinners is God's justice as a result of sin. This is who he is. It's not something he can equivocate, not something he can wink at. It's not something the world likes. It's not something many believers don't like, many believers like. We don't like that thought. We like the thought of just God being a God of love and of kindness and mercy. But if God is a love God of love, if he is God love, not man kind of love, God's love demands justice and the payment for the breaking of his law. That's what his love is all about. But his love also wants his people to be spared. So the propitiatory work of Christ is the giving of, shedding of his blood so that the sins may be forgiven, so that the wrath of God may be satisfied. And in the satisfaction of the wrath of God, then we come to the expiatory or expiation work of Christ. So when the blood is shed and the wrath is satisfied, God's justice is satisfied. <clears throat> As a result of that satisfaction, now God can justly forgive sin. 
He only forgives sin on the basis of the death of an innocent. And once the death of an innocent has occurred and the blood has been applied, then God is free within his own moral self, his own moral self. He is free now to forgive sin on the basis of that sacrifice. And the forgiveness of sin is pictured in Leviticus 16. Remember, in the scapegoat where the priest lays his hands after coming out of the holy of holies the blood has been shed he comes out and he lays his hands on this scapegoat and he confesses or places if you would by the word of god the sin of the people upon that scapegoat for another year and the scapegoat is sent into the wilderness away to die that is the expiation the sending away or the putting away of our sin and so you remember Leviticus 16, 21. Then Aaron shall lay both hands on the head of the live goat, the goat of departure. It means the goat of departure, expiation, the goat of departure. And the goat shall bear on itself all the iniquities to a solitary lamb. He shall release the goat into the wilderness. So the goat bears the sin. Who is our sin bearer? Jesus Christ. Where is the Bible? Where does it say that Jesus himself bears our sin where does it say that second corinthians 5 21 write that down know that verse he became sin who knew no sin remember what does it mean became sin it doesn't mean as some preachers say he became a sinner he became the judicial bearer of sin this goat is not a sinner this goat is innocent of sin but judicially typifying the innocence of the Son of God in his person, that goat becomes one that wears, if you would, or is clothed with the sin of the people and is sent away so that the representation of the sin of the people in this goat is put away from God's presence for another year. Jesus, if you would, is clothed. This innocent man is clothed with this, our sin, so that he begins to well, that's another story. I don't want to go down that road. And so he, he is clothed with the sin of the people. So at the cross, God judges him. And in judging him as our sin bearer, he is judging our sin with which he is clothed. And so when he dies, sin has been paid for. The wrath of God has been experienced by him in the cross, especially the last three hours, beginning at noon to three. Remember the clouds and the darkness and so on. That was the worst time on the cross. And then, that's when he exclaimed, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? <clears throat> and then when he dies, sin is put into the grave and buried. Okay, did we get that? The first goat pictures the shedding of the blood of Christ for our sin. What is that called? Propitiation. Remember John 1.29. What does John sees Jesus and what does he say? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away, who bears away who pays in himself for our sin, the propitiatory work of Christ. 1 John 1, 7, Son of God, Jesus, God's Son, what? Forgives us, how do you like that? For the blood of Jesus, God's Son, cleanses us of how many? All sin. Remember those words, all. All sin, 1 John 1, 7. All sin, uh, Colossians 2, 13. All sin, all sin. No sin having to be paid for by me through acts of contrition or through purgatory or through denial or through suffering. None of that has anything to do with the payment of my sin. 
And the greatest of all statements is John 19, 30, when Jesus says what? It is paid for. It is finished. I have in myself alone and forever, absolutely, comprehensively, I have paid every sin. So if there is any sin that remains that needs to be paid for, God has not accomplished our redemption in the cross. So if you think there's even one sin that needs to be paid for, and you need to do something in order to get God to forgive it, if there's just one sin that you think you need to do something in order for God to forgive it, I need to read more, I need to do this more, so God, will, God has not saved us in Christ. Can you say amen? It's that clear. It's that clear. Why do I emphasize this? Because the devil loves to play with believers who have a weakness in this understanding. This is the basic issue of our salvation. Christ died for us while we were still sinners, and his death is absolutely, comprehensively, forever, eternally our salvation. Amen? Amen. That's it. It's that simple. If it weren't that simple, ain't none of us would be saved. So the first goat, the shedding of the blood for our sin, then the second goat, bearing it away, 2 Corinthians 5.21, to a place of burial. Remember <clears throat> Romans 6.4, the place of burial. Now Paul summarizes this twofold work, this twofold work. The wrath, the forgiveness for adoption. The wrath on Jesus. The forgiveness because of the wrath is satisfied in his death, and adoption or becoming born again, if you would. Jesus' twofold work, dealing with the wrath of God so God can forgive us. <clears throat> this twofold work of Christ is stated in Romans 4.25 as a Godward aspect and a manward aspect. This salvation has a Godward aspect and a manward aspect. The Godward aspect if you want to, I don't know whether in your notes, 425 is in your notes. Christ was delivered up when, where, when was he delivered up? If I be lifted up, what does that mean? It's a picture of what? The cross. Christ was delivered up. What is he saying? Christ on the cross. Christ was delivered up for our trespasses. What does that mean? He died to satisfy the wrath of God so the wrath could be propitiated, averted, put away, satisfied. That's why Christ died, for the forgiveness of our sins. Second one, the man aspect. Christ was raised for our justification. This now means that what God has done in Christ, in his son, at the cross, and in his death, now becomes ours. It becomes ours. This is for us. Christ was raised for our justification. He was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. In the resurrection of Christ, you see, we must make a distinction. The death of Christ dealt with God's wrath as to our sin for our forgiveness. Amen? The death of Christ dealt with God's wrath as to our sin for our forgiveness. You got that? Propitiation. It was an inexpiation. Then the resurrection of Christ deals with our justification. 
being declared as not guilty of sin. Justified, being declared legally as not guilty of sin. God, the great eternal creator judge. And how can he declare us as not guilty? How many of us are innocent of sin? How many of us will all, any time ever be innocent of sin? Never. How many of us are not guilty of sin? I'm not guilty. God has said I'm not guilty, therefore what? I'm not guilty before his bar of justice. What this judge says of me is what? It's either true or it's not true. I may not feel like it, but that doesn't mean I'm not. And so God justifies those who are in Christ having their sins paid for in the death of Christ. And so what does Romans 5.1 say? Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Listen, brothers and sisters in Christ, there are certain verses of Scripture you should know by heart. It's just the long and short of it. You just need to know them. You know, in English, you just needed to know the parts of speech, right? You needed to know certain things. You need to know certain things. The manwood aspect, what God has done for us in Christ. God declares that the sacrificial death of his son has satisfied his justice, resulting in the expiation of our sin, the putting away of our sin. Remember from east to west. Remember that, Jeremiah 31. Allowing God now to justly declare us as not guilty, to justify us. Why? Why does God justify me? Why does God call me and call you? Why does God call us not guilty? Why? Now he can complete the work of our salvation, which is now he can send his spirit into the hearts of those whom he justifies for us to be born again by faith. Amen? This is what he does. In the death, he deals with the sin issue. In the resurrection, he deals with the life issue. In the death, he deals with the sin issue. In the resurrection, he deals with the <clears throat> life issue. Therefore, which one is more important? You know, I've actually heard people say, the cross of Christ is more important. The resurrection of Christ is more important. Of course it's silly. Without one, you don't have the other. So any of you have a coin on you, which side is more important, the heads or the tails? Argue all day long. It's not a coin unless you have both sides, right? Now let's talk about the New Testament explanation of this theology. What does this theology of the mercy seat look like in the New Testament? And I, I want to call your attention, and if you would, if you have a Bible, turn to Romans 3, 21 to 25. Probably and possibly five of the most important verses in the entire Bible as having to do with our justification. Probably five of the most important verses in the Bible having to do with our salvation, justification before God. Okay? These verses are so important that you should at least know where they are and generally what they say. These verses are critical. And remember in the, I'm not going to outline Romans for us. But at least in verses 10 to 20, what Paul has done in chapter 3, he's saying that everybody is under the judgment of God because of sin. Remember, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everybody is a sinner. 
Then in verses 10 to 20, Paul, using the Psalms as his evidence, convicts and shows how absolutely sinful and unable we are to save ourselves. We're not going to go into that. We've done that before. There is absolutely no possibility for any man, woman to save himself. It is impossible for a man or a woman to seek for God on his own, to look for Jesus, to even want to be saved. It is impossible to even want to be saved. Why? Because in order to want to be saved, you must know that you are condemned. And it is impossible for any man or woman in him or herself naturally to even know or believe that you're condemned. Now, you may know there's some problems in the world. But God first shows you you're condemned. Then he uses that warning to woo you and then to win you. You see, the gospel warns, woos, and wins us into Christ. So the, in verses 1 to 10, Paul gives us the scriptural proof for the utter hopelessness of unrighteous men to merit the righteousness of God. And, and that's the way you need to put it. Why? Why? Because you see, remember in John, Romans 1.16, what does it say? For the God, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it is the power of God to do what? To save for everyone who believes. What does verse 17 say? For in it, in what? The gospel. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. So the gospel is the revelation of the righteousness of God. How do I become righteous? Al, how do you become righteous if you started off unrighteous? You can't. It's impossible. You see, if we will think about the gospel and our salvation in terms of not being good or bad, because good or bad, if we use them in an earthly sense, have nothing to do with what we can do. Good biblically means righteous. Good in a natural sense means, are you doing nice things for somebody? Did you say nice things? And maybe if I say enough nice things and do nice things, I can outweigh this thing and get in. It has nothing to do with that. It has this. Are you a righteous person? In other words, are you a person who is clothed with the very righteousness of Jesus Christ? Because if you're not clothed and I'm not clothed with the righteousness of the Son of God himself, his own rightness, his own purity, his own majesty, his own greatness, if I'm not clothed with him, I'm not going into heaven. Now, when we begin to see it that way, can we begin to see that there's no way for us to get that? It's impossible. Think biblically. Don't think the way the world gives you to think. Think biblically. And when we're discussing this with other people, use biblical terminology. I was saying something this morning to someone, <clears throat> and he said, so-and-so is in the wheelbarrow. I said, don't use that term like that. The wheelbarrow is a wonderful, wonderful type of something of commitment into Christ. But once one is saved, use the word saved. Don't use non-biblical terms because they don't relate to anything in the Bible. A type is something of an illustration, but it's not the fullness of what needs to be understood. 
So let's be a church that says he's saved, he's born again, he has a spirit, he's righteous in Christ. Use these kinds of terms. Why? Because this is what God gives us to use. Let us not use other terms that take the place of God's terms. That's just a freebie. I know I'm going to get some comments about that, but let them come. Let them come. Now, in verses 21 to 25, Paul explains the activity of the gospel. Paul explains the activity or the revelation of the gospel. By the way, let me just say this quickly. I, I, I may never get through this today. I like the word gospel. You know why? It's a biblical term. But sometimes I wonder how what we think of it. So let me give you another thought this morning. All of the gospel, all of its content, all of its meaning, all of its activity, all of its result, all of the gospel is contained in one name, Jesus Christ. So what is the gospel? Jesus Christ. At the name of Jesus, you see. So just think of the gospel that way. Why? Because too often we relate the gospel to activities rather than to a person. Mark 1.1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So let's relate the gospel the way it needs to be rather than through things we need to do and things we're doing. Okay, comprehensively, the gospel can be summarized and completely satisfied within this term, this name, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. In 21 to 25, Paul explains the activity of the gospel as God's only means of restoring his people to a place of righteousness or righteous standing before him. And this is the purpose of the mercy seat. The mercy seat takes the blood and sheds it for God's provision of his justice for the purpose of declaring us righteous okay the mercy seat has to do with god's accomplishing his purpose of being creating us as his righteous people bringing us back to the place where adam began having no sin being the son of god you see in a fullness of the presence of god and we'll go there remember in revelation what is it 21 and 22 so let's read these verses. Look at your Bible and let's read them together. But now the righteousness of God, remember, in it, the gospel, righteousness of God, the gospel, the name of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, all of that together. Just think collectively and comprehensively about these things. The righteousness of God, all that God is, all of his rightness, all of his purity, all of his glory, all of his holiness, all of his love, all of his mercy, all of his wrath, all of everything of God. The rightness or the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by his grace. Do you see the mercy seat activity here? Are we seeing the mercy seat? You see why I spent so much time in the beginning about the mercy seat. Propitiation. You see the mercy seat activity here and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So let's break it down. Let's exegete. Let's explain. The word exegesis means just let's, let's break it down. Let's explain this. 
verse 21. And I'm going to go through this kind of in a rapid fire. Uh, I had to be very careful because literally you could take six weeks, literally six to eight weeks on this. It is that full. Number, verse 21, a righteousness of God has been manifested. God's righteousness is revealed. It's learned, not earned. I didn't come up with that term. I can't remember who said it, so I'll just have to give it to you like that. It is learned and not earned. God's righteousness is revealed to us. And where is that righteousness revealed? Where is the only place where that righteousness is revealed? Where is it? In that book which has 66 books in it, beginning with Genesis 1, ending in Revelation 22. It is the only location of the righteousness of God. Ain't no other book out there that has it. There are other books that are written about this book. This is the source, and these are the resources, and they're great, and they're fine. We need to study. We need to read and all that. But never, ever think this, that another book takes the place of your Bible. Those are companion books. Your Bible is the book of books. So first of all, the righteousness of God has been manifested. It's revealed. Where was the righteousness of God manifested? Where? Where? Well, throughout the Old Testament in what? Bits and pieces. The law, basically, and then you're right. The law, the prophets, the Psalms, but then in other issues, right? The righteousness of God. We see the righteousness of God all over the Old Testament. But where has it been manifested fully? John... 114. And the Word became flesh and what? Dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory. The glory of what? The righteousness of God. Full of what? Grace and truth. You see, that's when the righteousness of God was manifested. John 114. Remember, we've talked about that verse. Number 21, verse 21. The rights of God has not only been manifested, but it's been manifested apart from the law. Although God's righteousness is the substance of the law, what Paul is saying here, the law manifests the righteousness of God. The law is good. Remember Romans 7. The law is perfect. Remember Rome, uh, Psalm 19, Psalm 119 and 19. The law is good. Never believe a teacher who says the law is not applicable to us as a revelation of God's righteousness. But it is not applicable to us as our means of trying to merit through keeping the law, God's love. So the law, you see, the righteousness is the uh, substance of the law. But no law keeping can reproduce God's righteousness in us. We have the law. So was Israel required to keep the law? But how were they required to keep the law? You see, their keeping the law was the same way as our keeping the law. They were to keep the law by faith. We are to keep the law how? By faith. They did not have the Spirit in them. They had the Spirit of God with them. We now have the Spirit of God in us, giving us the internal motivation and empowerment so that we can now keep the law by faith. Why? Because we have in us the living presence of Jesus Christ by His Spirit, the only man who has ever and will ever fully 
completely, absolutely keep God's law. I have in me the law keeper. And all I'm doing now, if you would allow me to say that, is by faith I'm drawing upon his life in me to be revealing to me what's going on in me and what I'm doing according to his law or not according to his law. And as I'm doing according to his law, I continue to do that. As I'm not doing according to his law, what? I confess, I repent of that. I call upon him to manifest in me a greater work of his spirit in whatever it is so that the next time this issue comes up, I will be doing according to his law. I will be therefore be cooperating with the very life of Jesus Christ himself in me by his Holy Spirit, don't you see? Did you get that? So am I a law keeper? Yes! Do I keep it perfectly? No, that's why I have been forgiven. But I'm not keeping the law to get, I'm keeping the law because I have. I ain't doing nothing to get. I'm doing everything from the position of already having it. I have Christ. And it's all by faith. It's all by faith. So it's apart from you trying to merit. No merit. No merit. Bill's taught this a number of times in here. Absolutely no meritorious work. There was only one man who merited the work of God. Who was it? Jesus came and he had to merit it. Because Adam dismerited it, if you would. Can I say that, Eileen? Dismerited? Because Adam sinned, he dismerited. Jesus had to come to merit it, Johnny. He had to earn, earn it. And he did so because he kept it perfectly. Therefore, God has now given us that merit of Christ. God has given us the merit of Christ, don't you see? It's taken away from me my ob the obligation, the worry, the burden, the impossibility for me to merit anything from God. Do we see this? That's why legalism and all that formality that's not of God is demonic. It's either it is or it isn't. I stand on what the Bible says. Other teachers or other religions or faiths say something different. Let them come up against the Word of God. Let them come up against the Word of God. I'm trying to do this fast, you understand? I feel like I'm running a marathon here. I know you may not think so, but I feel it. I'm out of breath. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. God's own righteousness is received by us by faith in Christ alone. Romans 10, 13, what does that say? Somebody tell me what Romans 10, 13 says. What does Romans 10, 13 say, church? Somebody bellow it out. Whoever believes or calls upon the name of the Lord, what? Shall be saved. And then he goes into the exposition. Well, how, how can they believe? How can they be saved without, you know, then he gets into preaching and all that. You see, the righteousness of God is received us by us, not as a meritorious work, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Well, you know these things. I know these things. But we need to be refreshed in them. We need to be cleansed every once in a while of fuzzy thinking in these areas. John 7, 37, remember Jesus stood up in the midst of this great vessel and said, whoever thirsts, let him come to me. Remember, he's quoting from Isaiah. Let him come and buy without money. Let him come. Verse 23, 
For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every one of us are equally guilty and are equally in need of being saved. I don't have to explicate that anymore, do I? All of us know that. Number 24, we are justified. What does that mean? We are declared not guilty before the bar of God. Judicially or legally, if you would, we are declared as not guilty. That's what justification means. Remember that. We're declared as not guilty. We are justified as a free gift by God's grace. You see, all Paul is doing is tracking through it, plowing it through. You think Peter Davidson repeats? You ought to read Paul sometimes. He is saying the same thing 22 different times. The, the, uh, John is even worse than that. You go read 1 John and see how many times he says the same thing over and over and over. What's the matter with this man? He's already told us that. What does it say about us? We need a whole lot of repetition here. We are justified as a free gift by God's grace. Righteousness is given to us freely. Amen? Based on whose will? Based on whose will? Mine or God's? If it were based on my will, Ronnie, we'd never be saved. Come on, let's get it. If it were based on my will, my sinful, condemned, under the uh, rule of Satan, having no free will, we were captured to do his will, 2 Timothy 2.25. We are captured by him. We're slaves to sin. We cannot. So we had to have that broken, don't you see? Apart from any supposed meritorious work. Titus 3.15 is a wonderful verse. You need to look at that one. Our faith to receive Christ is not our work, but our cooperation with the work of God who gives us a faith. Some people say this, everybody's born with a measure of faith. Have you heard that before, that everybody has faith? Have you heard that? Everybody has faith. Therefore, on the basis of everybody being given faith, just enough faith, then everybody has the ability, if he wants. You see, Allison, if you want to. Everybody has the ability to, have, to express faith, if you want to, in Christ, if you want to. And it's up to you to want to. It's up to you to seek for Jesus. Well, where does it say that everybody has faith? What, what's the verse for that? You see, when somebody tells you that, ask them, where is it from? Where's, the word? Where's that verse? We've covered this before. There is a verse. It says, all of you have a measure of faith. It's Romans 12, 3. You may have already found it. Romans 12, 3. Well, what does it say? Paul's talking to the church and everyone among you. Who, Perry? The believers. In other words, God gives every believer faith to receive Christ. Where do I get that from? Ephesians 2.8. Remember that? Not of it's a gift of God, lest any man should boast. So why did I get faith? God decreed that I would have it. Now that brings some tough questions up. But you're going to have to go to God and fight that one out. Don't come see me about that. I did not make this up. <laughs> Oh, look at Romans 10, 17. How many of you know what Romans 10, 17? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ or the word of God, right? Faith what? What's the first, second word? Faith what? Comes. What does that mean? If it's already in you, Phage, it doesn't have to come. But if it's not in you, it has to what? Come. It has to be given. It comes from the outside into you, Saber. It comes inside of you. It comes. 
Why are we making such an issue of this? Because we want to make sure that we divest ourselves of any thought that we had something meritorious to do with this work. We have a work to do, and that is this work. What is the work of God? Remember the man asked Jesus, and he says this, this is the work of God, that you have faith in the one whom he has sent. Ours is to, when we are given that faith, being born again, Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27. When we're given that faith, how do you know you have it? You will know. You realize you're a sinner. You need to be saved. You don't want to go to hell. You know that Jesus died for you. You had that desire. That is operation, the activity of faith. When you have that, what is our response? Our response is to receive or to say yes or to cooperate. That is our work. But when God gives that faith, when God gives that revelation, when God gives us the Spirit in that way, now say it this way, to make no equivocation, when God births you, that is that beginning birth work of Christ by the Spirit in us, when God does that, every person in whom God does that will be saved. There's no such thing as God doing that and saying, ah, no thank you. There's no such thing. It's a guarantee that those whom God desires to save, what? Will be saved. Can someone shout, thank you, Lord? If that weren't the case, how many of us would have bellied up out of this the first time somebody said something to us weird about Jesus? <laughs> how was it done? Through redemption, which is in Christ Jesus. God satisfied, justified us because of the blood, the, the paid price. We need more time in Sunday school. That's all there is to it. Everybody's got to write the elders and tell them we need three hours on Sunday morning. <laughs> Verse 25, the blood, remember the redemption, that's a price paid. By the way, to whom was the price paid? Not to Satan, but to God. It was his demand. Jesus was fulfilling or paying the price that God put on sin. God put the price on sin. What was the price? Genesis 2.17, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. That's the price for sin. Jesus comes and he pays God's price for sin. It's foolishness and it's absolutely demonic to say, God, Jesus paid Satan anything. Satan doesn't get anything out of this except thrown into the lake of fire at the end. How? As a propitiation in his blood, through faith. Remember, propitiation, the averting of the wrath of God. The redemption price that satisfies the wrath of God was the shedding of the blood of Christ. So these three, five verses can be summarized this way. God's righteousness is separate from man's meritorious work. Do you believe that? Then the next time you do something wrong, don't think you better go read your Bible a little more in order to get something from God. Huh? Huh? Anybody? Huh? You need a blessing by God, from God. Man, I need a blessing tomorrow. I need a blessing tomorrow. Today I'm going to be real good. Now there's a place where you need to obey God. But if that's the way you're thinking, you're trying to earn that. Am, am I touching somebody on this? You should all be touched some kind of way because that's who we are in the flesh. That's how we are. We're sown into this. I had to battle it regularly. Jewel, do you have to battle it? We had to battle this. This is just the way it is. But do battle it. <laughs> God's righteousness is made known by revelation. How are you where you are today? God showed you. God's righteousness is received by faith. Where'd you get the faith? 
we weren't born with it. We were given it on, you know, through our being born again. Faith. God's righteousness. By the way, when you look at chapter 3, Jesus is talking about being born again. He doesn't touch the word faith until verse 15. God's righteousness is offered to all who believe. Well, whoever believes is saved. Why? Because God has determined his family ahead of time. God's righteousness is a free gift. It either is or it ain't. It is secured by redemption through the blood of Christ. You see, all of this, I'll summarize my last several notes this way. All of this that we've talked about in the tabernacle is accomplished through one person. The tabernacle and all of its structure and all of its function was put on earth for the purpose of the high priest. The tabernacle serves the high priest. It is the means through which the high priest accomplishes the salvation of God's people. The high priest is the centerpiece of all of this work of redemption. And next week we'll start talking about him. Thank you.